Welcome. You may be a member at Rochester Church of Christ, or you may follow us regularly online, or you may have been referred to this by a friend. Either way, we're glad you're here. This is Adam Hill, Minister of the Word at Rochester Church of Christ, and I hope that this message will speak into your life with the good news about Jesus. Happy Easter. He is risen. That's right, I better hear you. I don't get dressed up this well for, uh, for silence. If I don't hear a few amens out of this, I'm never wearing this again. So, that's, thank you, thank you. <clears throat> Philip Yancey once commented, the four horsemen of the apocalypse give a preview of how the world will end. In war, in famine, in sickness, and in death. But Jesus gives a personal preview of how the world will be restored by reversing the deeds of the four horsemen. He fed the and he brought the dead to life. If you will, it's our tradition to honor the Word of God and to reverence it by asking us to stand. If you're able and you're willing, please stand for a reading of the Word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. The Bible says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at that time. Most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all to me also as one abnormally born. This is Paul's first order gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you For Jesus, who lived, who died, and was buried, and who was raised, we thank you for the victory of life, and we pray that we may be a people who give life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is Paul's first order gospel, Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And without this, we are hopelessly lost. There is nothing we could have done for our salvation had Jesus not come and lived and died, been buried, and been resurrected. You see, life wins is the proclamation of the gospel. Death is conquered and Christ is victorious. The Bible began as a story of life with God creating all things. And then by the third chapter, sin has co-opted it and made it the story of death. Sin has one great superpower and it is death. 
But death does not get the last word. Life does. And if you can't preach that, then it's probably time to just give up. Because that is good news. So with that in mind, with that good news in mind, I want us to conclude our study through the gospel of Mark by looking at the way Mark ends his gospel and proclaims the resurrection. From Mark chapter 16, when Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going on ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Hold on, Adam. What about Christ victorious? What about the death of death? You just told us if you can't preach this one, you should probably give up. And Mark hits us with this? What's your deal, Mark? No one's going to use your gospel on Easter Sunday. Not with an ending like that. But before we crucify Mark for his ending, you see what I did there? Oh man, I'm feeling it today. Before we do that, let's, let's take a moment to hear it all in light of what, God, of, of, what, of what Mark has been doing through his entire gospel. You see, Mark's point is not so much the glory of resurrection. Mark's point is that the worst this world can and will do to the followers of Jesus is not half as bad as God is good. His power will bring ultimate victory, even over death. But the process of following Jesus through the cross will leave us terrified and leaning solely on God's miraculous deliverance. And so here again, the ending of Mark's gospel. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body Bear in mind that these women are headed to the tomb because they want to anoint Jesus' body for burial. They are not going to celebrate resurrection. You see, when Jesus was crucified, there wasn't enough time to prepare his body before Sabbath. And so they simply put him in the tomb and said, we'll have to come back and take care of this later. And so now they approach, they have all kinds of spices and ointments, but they really don't have a great plan because they still have that same question nagging them, who's going to move the stone for us? You see, that's not a question that's filled with hope when they ask it. 
Who's going to move the stone for us? Because when they move the stone, they don't think they're going to find him alive. They're asking a logistic question that is the hurdle that they see into preparing his body for death. But then in verses 4 and 5, they look up and they see that the stone, which was very large, has been rolled away. And as they enter the tomb, they see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they're alarmed. True to form, Mark tells us that the stone has been moved, but he gives no, not a moment's worry about how. He hand waves that and just says it has been. The tomb instead is open, seemingly for no better reason than to allow these women in to confirm that Jesus' body is no longer there. The angelic messenger just kind of is sitting there, he's chilling, he's wearing some white robes. And immediately the women are alarmed. Now, he immediately starts to sound very angel-like because he starts with, don't be alarmed, which is the standard angel greeting if you read your Bible. (laughs) Apparently, there's an alarming something about angels. He says, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. He's risen. That That was the words. Mark gives about as much time to explaining the resurrection as he does to explaining the crucifixion. And then he died. And you're like, oh, wow, that was brief. Uh, They crucified him right there. And you're like, oh, man, I was expecting a little more. Draw that story out, Mark. It's almost as if... He really wants to get to this next part. Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, there there you'll see him just as he told you. You see, they're given a quest. God announces his resurrection in order to give people a mission, not just to give them facts. Now that deserved an amen, but I snuck up on you. That a better orator would have done that with different pacing. And you would have realized that was a moment. You see, yeah, I'm going to try it again. We're going to run it back, and now you know your cue, but we're going to go with it. You see, they are given a quest. God announces resurrection in order to give his people a mission, not simply to give them facts. That was much better. (laughs) Dub that one for the recording. We want to just cut the first part and then just splice it in. We'll take care of it in post. The women are told to go and tell the disciples and Peter the news of Christ's raising. This is the first time Jesus' followers are told to go and tell someone about him. Because in Mark's gospel, he's been real secretive. As soon as he heals someone, he says, don't go tell anyone. Don't, Don't let them know how this happened. Don't share that. You're not ready. And then once he's raised, he says, all right, go tell him. Something has changed with the resurrection that makes the secrets and the silence unnecessary. The mention of Peter tells us something about the power of resurrection for believers. Peter was last seen abandoning Jesus just after cursing his name and denying him. Yet he's mentioned specifically here as a recipient of the news that Jesus wants him back. 
The messenger seems to spend more time on the fact that Jesus has gone on ahead of them than he did announcing the resurrection itself. Of course, Jesus has been on the move the whole gospel. Nothing changes after his death and resurrection. The command to go to Galilee is telling. By going back where they started in Galilee, Jesus calls his disciples back to where they were when he first called them to follow him. There they can regroup and ready themselves to begin again the journey of discipleship. And then we get to verse 8. The ending. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. One might expect them to run away quickly and tell the others the great news, but instead they flee incoherent and silent. Finally, the followers of Jesus are told to go tell the world about Jesus, and the response, ironically, is that they say nothing to anyone. Now, there are some versions of the Bible that include further verses, but most Bibles rightly point out with a line and maybe a note and then they put some things in italics that everything after verse 8 is an addition to the original designed to clean up the gospel and give it a better ending. After all, this one is so tragic. But in truth, the gospel of Mark ends no more abruptly than it begins. And it is super odd The tomb is empty, a mysterious and nonplussed dude in white tells us without proof that Jesus is resurrected. And then he gives some instructions which are promptly ignored by the ladies who are so scared that they choose not to obey. What's not to love? It seems to lead to a dead end. This is supposed to be good news, but it ends with disciples terrified and confused. But what if that's perfectly fitting? After all, the announcement from the messenger does in fact contain the first order gospel truth that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15.3. He says, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He was buried, 1 Corinthians 15.4. See the place where they laid him. He was raised on the third day, 1 Corinthians 15.4. He's risen. He's not here. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, 1 Corinthians 15, 5. Tell his disciples and Peter. He's he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. So even more though, Mark's ending reveals a couple of important things about his gospel. Now this is important at this point for me to note. If it was gospel, if you see gospel and there's a, a lowercase g, that refers to the good news about Jesus. If you see gospel with an, uh, an uppercase G, a capital G, that refers to a particular type of writing, a book known as a gospel. We have four of them in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So when I talk about John's gospel, I don't mean lowercase g as if he somehow is saying something different than everyone else is in terms of the truth about Jesus or the good news. What I mean is there's something about Mark's gospel, capital G, Mark's gospel, okay, the way he's telling the story that makes this ending very important. 
Mark's ending is subtle and powerful because it works much like Jesus' parables. It draws us in to reflect on it and look back through his account to see how everything Jesus said is true and has come to fulfillment. He doesn't spend a lot of time on the theological significance of the resurrection. We can see that the resurrection is a refutation of the grave and that it reverses the humiliation of the cross. That's true and Mark says that but he says more. You see, the whole gospel of Mark thus far has been a meditation on the suffering of Jesus and our suffering with Jesus. And the ending is not meant to be a panacea or a cure-all. While we may want Mark to end on a note of unquestionable victory, Mark instead chooses to remind us that while the Lord is risen, the ache of death is not so easily unfelt. The last scene in Mark's gospel in which Jesus speaks is from the cross. Mark has chosen to share with us the truth that one most vividly sees the power of God working in the crucifixion. And we cannot easily proclaim the victories of resurrection neglecting the essential witness of the cross of Jesus. Mark knows that gospel truth is that life will ultimately win and God's redemption is victorious because sin and death are conquered. However, he cannot allow us so to be so myopic as to forget that the cross is the throne of our Lord and no disciple is free from its reach. You see, Mark's ending, like Jesus' parables, pushes us to respond. This incomplete ending leaves us wondering that if everything Christ has said is true up to this point, then he must be waiting in Galilee, having gone ahead. And his disciples who seem to be about, and they seem to be about to miss their appointment with him. And so we're like, you guys got to go. And it prompts us to think, maybe we should go too. To wherever Jesus is, because we have to go meet him there. Because he's not stopped moving. It also prompts us to reflect on our own silence and fear in the face of God's word being completely true. Even the unbelievable parts about resurrection and the redemption of the whole earth from dead. If the gospel is completely true, what do I have to fear? And why am I silent? The ending of Mark's gospel is an essential reminder about our own human fallibility. It seems like there's a focus on human inadequacy, a lack of understanding and a weakness that throws into bold relief the action of God and its meaning. You see, the successful completion of the story, Mark reminds us, is not dependent on human performance. In fact, it's an easy answer to the question that the women ask in 16.3. Who will roll the stone away? God will. And he's the only one who ever could. Mark's gospel presents no model disciples. All of his followers falter and fail. Mark instead presents us a a pedagogy of hope based on disciples that fail and a Savior who forgives failures. Every second chance reminds us that discipleship is established and sustained by God's mercy and power alone. 
And that simple fact, the joyous news that the only one who is able to save us is willing. So we humbly and continually turn to God for help because only God can turn a failure into victory. And Jesus cannot be held by death, much less a stone. Jesus has conquered death, so it shouldn't surprise us that we can't meet him in a tomb, a place for dead people. We don't need a decorated and celebrated burial site because we have a living God on the move. And truth be told, Mark doesn't give us any proof of a resurrection. Now, I believe we have some really strong evidence that supports the claim of resurrection. But the truth is we don't have concrete proof. Rather, what we have is a promise and a witness that tells us, go and meet him. According to Mark, Jesus has always been on ahead of us, leading us to new places. The question is, will we go and meet him there and start the journey of discipleship all over again? Because at bottom, this ending, it's not really an ending at all. Mark began his gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the burial and resurrection may bring Mark's narrative to a close, but the resurrection is certainly not the end of the story, is it? See, I don't know if you're into sermon titles, but if you paid attention to sermon titles throughout this week, last, just Friday, Good Friday, the sermon title for Good Friday was The End. And if you pay attention, the sermon title today is the beginning. The burial and resurrection bring the narrative to a close, but the resurrection is not the end of the story. No more than we're about to find out for some of our young people that graduating from high school is the end of education. You see, you're in a new phase of the story, but that end only brought a new beginning. And it's only the beginning because it sets in motion a whole new story that's still not finished. The resurrection is not a faded memory or a relic of the past that we place in some picture book and glance at once a year every Easter. The resurrection is the only sure hope of salvation that the believer has. I'm looking for Steve Sparks. Okay, okay, he stepped out for a moment, but I test him on this regularly. What is the sure hope of our salvation? And if he were here, he would tell you the answer I I make him give me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the hope that we hold on to. That is the sure hope we have that death has lost and life has won. 
It is the only assurance and promise that the death we see all around us will not be victorious in the end. That the only real hope we have that God will redeem his creation and save it from bondage is the resurrection of Christ. But the truth of the resurrection provides us with an unfinished task of telling the whole world the good news. Of carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth so that everyone knows the story of the God who loves them and chooses them and calls them. The word Easter. The word Easter literally refers to the time of in the spring when days become longer than nights. But for the person who knows Jesus Christ, Easter means a lot more than that. It means that even though Jesus died, salvation didn't. And even though Jesus was buried, hope wasn't. Because Jesus is alive. Easter means that there is forgiveness for my failures, grace for my guilt, and mercy for my misery. Easter means that the pain and silence of living in a Saturday world isn't purposeless and it isn't permanent. Easter means that I, can out-sin, that I cannot outsin the grace of God and I cannot outrun the reach of God. It means that Jesus is king, that light overcomes darkness and justice will win and brokenness will be broken. Easter means that the scars on the hands of Jesus tell a story of victory, not defeat. And the same is true for me. It means I am not alone, that I am not ashamed, that I am not forgotten, that I am not forsaken. It means that the rain and the storms and the wind and the waves of this world will not have the last word because my future is a resurrected body with a resurrected Christ on a resurrected earth. Easter means that I can join with a choir of saints and angels singing, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? O hell, where is your song? Easter means that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed my transgressions from me. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for me. Easter means that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, God, are with me. Rochester Church of Christ is called to live God's gospel, truth, and love with the world so that we all may find life together in God. We are not a perfect people, but we long to live in ways that help people see God and the kingdom more clearly. To learn more about our family of faith or to connect with us, visit www.rochestercoc.org. Remember, you are loved and chosen.